Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm very, very happy and excited to be here today because I am here with John Ferreter. And if you don't know who John Ferreter is, Google immediately. I'm going to introduce him properly, but John has been an unbelievable mainstay in the entertainment business for probably over two decades, where he was a guy who was very, very involved in climbing the ladder of one of the greatest agencies in the world, William Morris, which is now William Morris Endeavor, ran an amazing company and all their endeavors in the entertainment and non-scripted fields at Octagon and now runs his own company called The Alternative. But before I start with the cold open, which I always like to do, and I always look at the person and think about what I'm going to say. So as I'm gathering my thoughts, I just want to thank all of you so much for your support of the podcast. I'll say it every time, whether you want to shut it off or not. I'm grateful. It's because of you that this podcast goes, and it's had an amazing impact in the emails and the letters and the FedExes and the tweets and what I get from everybody are just mind-boggling and I just very, very humbling. I also want to thank all of you for going on that fabulous Amazon banner on the website which supports the Jewish Boy Cats College Fund and it doesn't cost you anything. So thank you again so much. And without further ado, I look at John Ferreter, and this is what I think, everybody, because there's a lot of things that you don't know about certain people, and maybe you're not familiar with the stories of what people go through 
But John Ferreter was always a guy that I looked at when he was at William Morris as somebody who I thought to myself, God, if only I could get a show going that this guy would be excited about. Because as you'll see in his introduction, he's been a part of the fabric of some of the most successful non-scripted shows in the history of television. And he was always a guy who was an amazing hard worker. And the reason why I'm so shocked that he's sitting down with me here, because I've never known him in his life to shut off his phone for an hour or 90 minutes. Even when he's sleeping, I can guarantee you that that phone is not off and it's by his bed and he probably wakes up at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, wakes up to go to the bathroom and probably looks at it while he's peeing at 4 o'clock in the morning. So the fact that he's giving me this time is incredible. And one of the things that you don't realize when you're idolizing a guy and looking at him and thinking, my God, how does this guy do it? How does he make it work? How does he keep going? You don't realize the adversity that certain people go through. And I think the most important thing that I see in these podcasts are the issues of what people go through that are sort of being the public eye, but you don't know what happens. You don't know how people go through them, what they go through. And I remember at the end of the first decade of the century, John was always a guy who had an amazing opinion, never afraid to say what he felt. And when you're working at a place like William Morris, you're at a company that's been around for over a hundred years and it's been run a certain way and there's a certain board of directors and there's a mentality about how things go and there's a protocol about how things go. But I remember back around 2008 or 2009, John was in a situation where he was very involved in the discussions about how the company should position themselves in the future regarding a possible merger with another tremendous agency called Endeavor which at the time was run by a number of great people, Ari Emanuel being one, Patrick Weitzel. And William Morris was run by a group of people as well who had been around the business a long, long time. And there were discussions about whether they should merge with Endeavor or not. And John, because he was the head of William Morris in terms of non-scripted or one of the heads, he was privy to those conversations, and I remember through the grapevine and through rumblings within the community that he was having what I'd like to call a Jerry Maguire moment where he felt a certain way about how the company should go, and he wasn't afraid to give his opinion that he didn't think the merger was something that was a good idea, or at least... He felt that he wasn't going to be in a position to come out and support it wholeheartedly. And throughout things that happened, I remember a day in 2009 where I had heard that John was no longer going to be with the company, which was shocking because he'd been so involved. He'd done so many great things. He'd had so many great relationships. But whatever the navigation or whatever was discussed internally after he voiced his opinion that they shouldn't go through with his merger, he was no longer 
at the company. And if you're a high-profile guy and you've done a great job in the business and you've had relationships with people all through town and there's an announcement that comes out that you're no longer with the company, that is a unbelievably devastating blow because you don't have control over the publicity. You don't have control over the spin that's out there. And you're in a situation where you are beholden to the powers that be of the sausage factory that can print out anything they want and people read things and they believe them to be gospel. And so John was in a situation where it was taking a huge toll on him, stress-wise, health-wise. He was in the hospital. And it's public knowledge that he filed a $25 million lawsuit against William Morris. And when you file a lawsuit against somebody, that is a huge blow. Because when you're in a situation in this town... Let's face it, if you're a guy who owns another company and you want to hire somebody, you don't want to hire a guy who's slinging a $25 million lawsuit out there. So by doing so, John put himself in another risky position, which he's done his whole career, and he took a stand. He took a stand for himself. He took a stand for other agents out there in the business who had been unceremoniously treated in a certain way and he fought and when you fight in a lawsuit like this there's a huge cost to it you don't just file a lawsuit and it's like oh let me file it's a thousand dollars here and let me pay this guy who's uncle joe's attorney from peoria illinois you have to hire people that cost serious money. And when I'm talking serious money, I'm talking between $500 and $1,500 an hour for lawyers to do their job. And believe me, these lawyers that do the job, they're not doing it like they're running a sprint. They're taking their time and it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars that you have on the line. And companies like William Morris or Coca-Cola or big companies, they have lots of money to burn. But when you're an individual, no matter how well you've done, it takes its toll. But John fought it and he went to court. They decided to go to a mediator. But what happens oftentimes, big companies make a decision how far they're going to go with something where it could be damaging to them and it could be in a situation where word gets out of certain things and oftentimes these things never go the final distance and they settle and fortunately in 2012 for John Ferrer William Morris settled with him and he was able to get some kind of long deserved recognition and fulfillment with inside him that whatever happened within those walls that was unspoken and whatever job he did for the company throughout all those years that was so successful he was rewarded for but let me tell you something 
if you're an agent and you represent artists and you leave a company or a company tells you to go, there are certain artists that are going to be like, thanks, John, for all the work, but I'm going to stay with William Morris. But then there's other artists who decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to be like Cuba Gooding Jr. I'm going to stay with Jerry. But then you go in the hospital and you're in the hospital. You can't control what's happening in the hospital. You're not working in the hospital. And artists are worried. They're scared. They have mortgages. People are talking to them. Hey, you're going to stick with John. He's in the hospital or, you know, we can start working for you right now. And I can guarantee you during that time, not every client that was with John probably stayed with him because they were worried about themselves. And when they went off and did their own thing, again, more devastating blows. But John came out of the hospital, out of the settlement, and sure enough, there was an announcement in the trades that he had taken over a position at Octagon to run all production, non-scripted, all areas of that entertainment company. And when I read that, I was like, yeah, this shows you, everybody, that you can go through adversity. You can go and do things that people feel are going to be hurtful, but if you're true to yourself and you believe in yourself and you bet on yourself, you can always be in a position to take things to the next level. Yes, there's hard times. Yes, there's times where you might doubt yourself. But in the end, no matter how many times somebody tries to kick your legs out from under you or knock you down, if you're true to what you believe in and you know you're great at what you do and your work is undeniable, you are going to come back and you are going to come back even stronger with more respect and people are going to take your calls and they're always going to meet with you and you're going to sell shows and you're going to sign great clients. And you're going to have the kind of career that John Ferreter has. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it. 
because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryKatz.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before I get started, I want to let you know about this one persistent guy, Michael Purcell, who kept calling me and traveled to L.A. to meet me. He told me that he created a company 10 years ago called Global Cash Card that figured out a way to make the payroll of any size company a paperless situation, allowing every employee's weekly salary to be instantly loaded anytime, anywhere, stress-free onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. He went on to tell me that it costs a company around $3 for every paycheck cut. And that means if you're an organization that writes a thousand paper checks every week, with his company, you'd save $12,000 a month by using Global Cash Card. And if you do the math, that's $135,000 a year. So go to globalcashcard.com right now to schedule live demo, speak to Michael Purcell, check out their system, and see how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And in honor of the people out there who listen to this program, at the end of this show and at the conclusion of every single show, every single week until the end of the year, we'll be giving away one free $100 gift card to a randomly selected person who has written a review good or bad, on the Industry Standard iTunes comments review section. And that's from all of our friends at Global Cash Card. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is a groundbreaking episode, everybody, because it's very rarely you get to talk to somebody who is an agent, a manager, a producer, a guy who runs companies. Very, very rare. I like to call him a magent basically, is John Ferreter. I'm going to give him the proper introduction. And after that cold open, I'm sure he's ready to fall into a diabetic-induced coma. John Ferreter is the chairman and CEO of The Alternative, a new management and entertainment production company. He was formerly the managing director of Octagon Entertainment and the former executive vice president, board member, and worldwide head of non-scripted television for the William Morris Agency, where he started his career in 1991 working for the legendary Dick Howard. John has packaged or produced literally hundreds of programs and thousands and thousands of hours of television. Among the shows he's been associated with include several Garth Brooks television specials, Arsenio Hall, the recent incarnation, the talk show, Blue Collar TV, Fear Factor, which was on for over 10 years on NBC, The Biggest Loser, Project Runway, The Man Show, Chelsea Lately, The Tom Green Show, Piers Morgan Tonight, Larry King Live, Dr. Drew, Donnie and Marie, Name That Tune, Celebrity Rehab, The Singing Bee, The Weakest Link, Miss America, and many, many more. As far as companies, he represents the Gurren Company, White Cherry Entertainment, Don Misher Productions, and 25-7. Another one of John's talents is he's also a successful touring and recording musician, having played with the Stingrays and the Tearaways for years. 
John Ferreter is known within the charitable circles of Hollywood as organizing the NBC tsunami benefit that generated almost $30 million for relief for that cause. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. I'm very, very excited. John Ferreter. Thank you, Barry. I appreciate you having me here and appreciate you doing the podcast and providing insight to everybody out there who wants to kind of find out what the business is all about and why they should probably stay away from it. (laughs) That's fantastic. As, As someone told me many years ago when I first started at William Morris, they said, kid, you need to have the patience of a saint and balls of steel. Otherwise, you aren't going to make it. And it was great advice because it's the absolute truth. You started at William Morris in the early 90s. Tell our audience the first thing that happened to you that reflects that last statement that you made. Day two, the agent who hired me was a great, uh, a great, great man. His name was uh, Dick Howard, rest his soul. He passed away uh, around 2000, 2001. Dick called me into the office and said, hey, kid, can you keep a secret? And I said, yeah, I think so. And he said, okay, um, you can't tell anyone, but tomorrow morning I start dialysis. And I'm going to be going through dialysis three to four days a week. Uh, That means I probably won't be in the office. You're going to have to take me to the dialysis center. And then you're going to have to drive me home. And you're going to have to do all my work here and then bring it to me up at the house so I can sign things. And then when I do come in, we're going to do self-dialysis in the office. And you're going to have to help me uh, perform dialysis and take out my bags of urine when they're done. And for those of you who don't know dialysis... Normally, it's common for people with kidney failure, and you have to regenerate the blood and the circulation of the blood, and it's a three-hour process. It's almost like a cleansing and a transfusion kind of thing all at once. So, so three days a week, I took them to the dialysis center down on Pico and these things aren't marked, you know, so it's not like the neon lights. We're going to the dialysis center. And these are huge machines that they're hooked up to at the size of eight feet by four feet. Correct. And I would take him down and then, um, bring him back and run the office and be in the office the whole time and answer the phones and coordinate all the paperwork and get on the phone with all the clients and have to convince all the clients that he just wasn't available and he would call when he could. And my job was to make all the clients happy without letting anybody know what was really going on. And then the days when he was in the office, I would have to essentially do the dialysis with him, which involves putting fluids in and out of the, the body. So I learned early on, this is not a job where you're going to complain about uh, picking up somebody's dry cleaning or getting coffee for them. I literally had to smuggle 20 pound bags of urine out of the office every day when he was there because he didn't want anyone to know because his fear was that the artists care about the artists that they would be worried they would think that dialysis was a death sentence and they would leave him and i was so naive i said god you're the greatest guy in the world who would want to leave you like you're you're a fantastic agent and i learned you know later on through experience real you know real life experience that you provide a service, you know, for the artists. And as long as you provide the service, um, a lot of them will stay with you. Some are always looking for greener pastures. They always believe, you know, the grass is greener on the other side and some just don't care if they don't feel they're getting serviced the way they want to be serviced at that exact moment. 
they'll leave. And the business had changed that used to be being an agent or being a representative. There used to be kind of a gentleman's agreement between all the representatives that you wouldn't poach clients. And it completely changed. And it was going through a change at that point. If people realized there was a weakness, they would try to exploit it. Talk to our audience about when you noticed that change happening and what was the first time you noticed that there was a shift in the thinking and somebody you noticed was being poached by another agency or your agency was poaching another client? Well, in the early 90s, our agency wasn't capable of poaching. They were, William Morris was in disarray because they had been picked clean by CAA the previous, by CAA and ICM the previous three, four years. CAA picked them clean of most of their top tier clients. Which clients at the time switched agencies? I can't remember who went where. But right before I got to William Morris, they lost Julia Roberts, Tom Hanks. It was people along those lines. Prior to that, they'd lost Pacino and Redford and all those guys. But what ICM did and CAA did in like, I think it was 89, 89, 90, right before I got there, is they poached the agents. They poached a lot of the female agents who believed they were underpaid. And from my understanding, they were underpaid. They weren't being paid the same thing that the men, the male agents. Because William Morris was always known as a boys club, a man's world there. Correct. So when I got there, they had literally just gone through the decimation of the agency. The first time I saw firsthand how someone gets poached, when I worked for Dick Howard, Dick had a few clients, uh, a couple directors, a couple producers, and then he was really known as kind of a music, country music crossover guy with the Oak Ridge Boys, Marie Osmond, Kathy Matea, Patty Loveless, Tammy Wynette, a bunch of people that just made good money all the time. We're always on the road and made money. And I remember about three, four months into being at the agency, Patty Loveless got poached by an agency called Triad. And I remember it happened on a Friday afternoon and everybody was panicked because it turned out no one had her home phone number. The only contact they had was through, you know, the manager and the manager wouldn't let anyone talk to her. And that was the first time I actually sat in a room and I watched what happened, the reaction where they realized that they had been poached and they'd been picked clean on a client. Take us through the, when you were in the room, what you noticed. Um... How do agents react? A lot of anger, but a lot of guilt. So the first thing that happens, and by the way, whether you're a client or an agent and you leave the agency or, you know, there's some sort of a separation between um, the client, the agent, or the agent, the agency, the first thing that the institution usually does is they say, oh, we don't want them anyway. It's a defense mechanism. Oh, you know what? We don't want to be in business with Dane Cook or whoever the client was. That's the first reaction. And that lasts for a couple hours while everybody voices. They have to voice the fact to actually accept, hey, we just lost this client. Then it starts to set in, well, why did they leave? Did you just get poached because somebody offered them a deal where they have to pay less commission or whatever it is? And then no relationship, representation relationship is perfect. There are always cracks. You can do the greatest job in the world for a client and they go to a club and meet a girl and her brother is an agent at some other place or her brother is a PR person at some other place whose brother happens to be an agent somewhere else. And the next thing you know, you lose your client. You don't even see it coming. So the thing that I noticed, which I thought was most interesting at that point is no one at William Morris even saw it coming that they were in jeopardy with the client. 
the second thing I noticed was no one actually spoke to the client. They all spoke through the manager. And I remember at that time, so this was probably late 91. I remember at that time thinking, I will always only have a relationship where I'm a, I can speak directly to the client. No problem speaking to the manager or speaking to the agent or the publicist or anyone on the team. I welcome that. But if I don't have a direct relationship with the client, I'm not going to represent them because I don't ever want to be in that situation where someone is representing my words to somebody else. I'll do it. Right or wrong. Bernie Brillstein told me this profound thing that I'll never forget. He said, kid, if the light is flashing on the phone and it's a client on the other end and you have a pit in your stomach, fire them. Good advice. Tell us a time when you were feeling like that pit in your stomach, but you just fought through and you're like, nah. Well, I usually I usually had that feeling when the light was flashing and it was Bernie Brillstein on the other line. <laughs> <laughs> Bernie hated me. Um, he hated you? Yeah, I did a project with him once. I was doing a project with Dan Finnerty and the Dan Band, and I had sold it to... Uh, Jeff Gaspin, who was running Bravo. We just had him on the podcast. Jeff's the best. And Jeff had bought it because I got Jeff and his wife to come see the Dan Finnerty show on a Friday night in Hollywood. Karen Gaspin loved it. So Jeff said, why not? We'll do a special. And I had uh, packaged the whole thing and I put Mick G into it to direct and produce. And I put Steven Spielberg into it because he was a fan of Mick G's. Uh, Jeff was paying a low license fee. Nobody was making any money. We were all doing it for passion. And a week before... Dan calls me up and says, uh, hey, my wife, Kathy, introduced me to one of her friends. He's my new manager and he wants to meet with you. And I said, great. Who is it? He goes, Bernie Brillstein. So I said, "Okay." Um, so Bernie's your manager now. What about, you know, Dave, who was your great manager? "Eh, He's kind of out. Here's what I'm doing. (laughs) So I had to go meet with Bernie. And when I walked into Bernie's office, he looked at the deal and he said, you know, this deal's crap. And um, I don't see my credit in here. So I want you to take care of this and do this and do this. And he said, and uh, I need an EP credit on this. And you know what? Spielberg's not doing anything, so let's get rid of Spielberg. And I looked at Bernie and I said, "Uh, Bernie, this is not Ned Spielberg we're talking about. (laughs) This is Steven Spielberg who's donating his time because he's a fan of Dan's to produce this. And it's Mick G, who's great friends with Dan, who's doing a development deal with your client. He's going to get him on the air. And he's directing this for scale and basically donating his fee. Everyone was working for free. Even the agency waived the package fee because there was no money. And I said, I'm not making those calls. So the next thing I knew, uh, Bernie was threatening me and I ended up at a lunch at the uh, grill with Jim Wyatt and Bernie. And Bernie, Bernie. Jim Wyatt was the head of William Morris at the time. And Bernie sat across from me and he goes, I don't like you. And I said, look, I don't care whether you like me or not. We have a client. And until we get through this, you can fire me afterwards if you want, if that's the move you want to make. All I know is this guy's a TV show. I got it for him and we almost lost it because you wanted me to fire Spielberg and get you a credit. So what did he say when you said that? He just did the Bernie stuff, you know, so he's grumbling and yelling and whatever. But here's the irony of it. Badge of honor. Bernie Brillstein sending me nasty notes, which I still keep and I've got framed. (laughs) You know, you think my breath smells like a thousand camels, you know, things like that. It was great. These are great Hollywood stories. And I learned a lot from Bernie. I I read his first book. It said, you're no one in this town unless someone wants you dead. I remember saying to Bernie, I guess I'm someone in this town because you want me dead. (laughs) 
That's fantastic. So, no, but it's, look, we have all these experiences that go on. It's in the Jerry Maguire sequel that they're making. They call it a John Ferrer moment now. So... You know, the, the irony, you, you mentioned the merger in, in the opening. I was on the board, and there had always been conversations about How many people were on the board? There were 19 that were on the board. 19. How many of the 19 were actual agents at the company, and how many were people who weren't in the office every day, but they were advisors? No, no. All 19 people that were on the board, I can't say they were all agents because some were administrators. Yeah. I wouldn't call her of Weintraub, who was the COO at the time, an agent, but he certainly was a, an administrator and a board member. But there were 19 people when it came time to the merger vote. Uh, the vote about a week and a half before I had it blocked. I had 10 votes against it and nine for it. And we were going to block the merger. Time out for a second. You're saying that you had 10 votes against your one guy. How could you have 10 votes against it? Because what we realized was the people who really wanted to push the merger forward were going to benefit financially. And there had been the appearance of self-dealing. And when we started to ask the questions about why it was happening, there's one thing I want to clarify. I was never opposed to doing a merger for William Morris. The motion picture department was in tatters. It needed help. There were some senior leaders who were just terrible leaders, and they needed to be replaced. I was always in favor of doing some form of a merger to help make the company stronger. That was just a bad deal for the William Morris agency, and it doesn't exist anymore. William Morris Endeavor is basically Endeavor. And many, many people lost their jobs. And in my my opinion, people were not being told the truth. That's the reason why I voted against the merger. I was the only one who voted against the merger on the William Morris side. But you're on a board with 19 people. And when you're on the board, I would imagine you get to the conference table and there's a packet on the table that has... The yellow and black book, Merger for Dummies. No, it doesn't. It, it's it, And I wish it was that way because who knows what would have happened. I may have never lost my job if someone had taken the time. There, there was such a rush and such a push to get the deal done. Why was there a rush? You'd have to talk to the other people about why they voted for it and who pulled what money out of it. I read all the contracts. I was one of the only people who actually got all the paperwork and read all the contracts. And even though I was sick at the time, I had contracted MRSA, and which later put me in the hospital. Where I, I don't know what MRSA is. It's a deadly staph infection, and that's what I went in the hospital with and flatlined while I was at Cedars. You but, flatlined? Yes. How long were you flatlined for? Roughly four minutes. Let's see what four minutes of dead air sounds like on a podcast, and then you'll see how long it was. Yeah, that's a different show. We can get into that. We can do John Ferreter voices from the other side and talk about that. But going going back into the into the merger and into to that aspect, there was a rush and there was a push to get it done. And there were people on both sides who wanted it done no matter what, and it was going to get done. So when we had been having the initial conversations, there were a lot of people who, who had doubt. And I believe if we had taken more time either the results would have been different or the merger might not have happened at all. But then people got scared. And the one thing you know, because you've done this for a long time quite successfully, just like clients get scared and they want what's familiar to them and they don't want to buck the system sometimes, 
same thing happens with agents is they get scared. They've got house payments, car payments, kids need braces, private schools cost a fortune in this area. They're concerned about insurance, uh, family members have cancer, have health issues that they're dealing with. So people got very quiet. And as a result, uh, I'll never forget the day of the vote because we walked in a room. William Morris was founded by a guy named Zelman Moses in 1898. He changed his name to William Morris. He started uh, representing jugglers and clowns and making money with them. We still do it to this day. And um, the company was 111 years old. And we walked into the room at the Beverly Wilshire and someone said, okay, let's uh, take a vote. Let's do a show of hands. And I went, wait a minute. We're not doing a merger where we're going to change the name of the company and do all this stuff without discussion first and by doing it with a show of hands. We're going to go around the room and everybody can enter their vote. And, you know, I I want this to be a roll call, but I want to talk about it first. Now, at the point when you said that, out of the 19 people, I would imagine you're not number one on the depth chart, but you're not number 19, but you're certainly not in the top 10. Yet you're raising your hand and speaking and saying, hey, listen, we're not doing this. And there's at least 10 other people who are more powerful than you in the room. Yet you're. Well, there were 18 more people who were more powerful because they all voted for it. But look, here, here, was, here was the reality. I was not opposed to a merger. The company was in trouble. There was bad leadership. It was a bad, failing motion picture department. If I had called you back then, and I think you had Dane Cook, who was white hot at that point, and said, hey, we want Dane Cook at this agency, you would have, out of courtesy, given me a meeting. You would have talked to me, and you would have said, John, if it was all about your area and doing specials and comedy and game shows and non-scripted and sketch comedy and all this other stuff that you've been involved with, I probably would have had a shot. But if I had looked you in the eye as an industry professional and said, we are the best agency for your client and we can turn him into a movie star, you would have said, John, you're delusional. And you would have been right. So the problem was we couldn't sell certain aspects of the agency and promise full service because we weren't giving it. The agency wasn't doing it. And the irony is you're going to see the whole thing happen again in the next couple of years once the agencies start going public. You're going to see the exact same thing that happened back with William Morrison and and Endeavor in 2009. You're going to see mergers. You're going to see acquisitions. You're going to see boutique agencies. You're going to see boutique representation companies. You're going to see people challenging the California Talent Agency Act. It's all about to change because the representation business is going to change. Nothing is going to stop that. Once, once you start taking in money from people who are not connected to the entertainment industry and they look at this as a profit source and they believe that because you have to provide a profit and loss statement to them and they come to you and tell you, you need to go to your biggest client and tell them to take a deal for financial reasons because they need it for the bottom line. And you know, you have a moral obligation and a fiduciary obligation to advise that client to do what's in their best interests. That is not always in the best interest of the company. And it certainly isn't in the best interest of the public company. That's about to happen. So you're about to see the big bang theory and nothing is going to stop it. It will provide opportunity for certain people, but you watch what's about to happen. You watch when public companies get a hold of these agencies and the clients start to realize what the agents are actually making and where they make the money and from what sources they come from. And you watch when some up and coming movie star realizes that their agent flies private and makes more money than them. You watch how long they stay with them in that agency. 
Now, you had mentioned earlier that in the early discussions, there were 10 people that were not in favor of the merger and nine that were. Now, this is the William Morris side. We're not even talking about the Endeavor side and their meetings. We don't know what their meetings were like or who was voting for or against there. But on your side, you said in the beginning... You and nine other people were like, eh, I don't think this is a good idea. How did it change so rapidly? Well, if you've ever watched an episode of Survivor, people start making deals. <laughs> What's in it for me? There, there was a great quote a friend of mine said to me, and I'm going to attribute it to David Geffen. I wasn't there, so I don't know whether he said this or not, but I'm going to attribute it to him because my friend said he said it to him. And it's a great quote. And because he said to my friend when he was questioning something, he said, your problem is you just don't understand what some people will do for money. And when you get in a situation, I mean, look, in 1991, how many agents drove Ferraris? What, maybe Gavin Pallone? <laughs> drove Maseratis, Aston Martins, you know. Carreras, things like that. A couple of music agents. Everyone drove Cadillacs and those stupid green Jaguars and all those things. Go to the agencies now and look what they're driving. You know, they'll drive a Prius into the office to say, look, I'm, you know, conscious of the environment. And then they go home and they're driving Maseratis and Ferraris and all these other things. No one made that money before, but they do now. So the business has changed. It, it's completely changed. In 1990, 91, did you ever see an agent from William Morris call over to Daily Variety or Hollywood Reporter and say, hey, I know you're writing that article on uh, this new deal we did. Make sure you put he's represented by me and represented by, <laughs> you know, the uh, you know so-and-so at the law firm of Dewey, Fuckham and Howe and uh, so-and-so management company and so-and-so PR. I mean, now there's so many attributions to all these things. It didn't exist back then because we were all anonymous. When I first heard Barry Katz's name, I, you know, I thought of George Burns. That's George Burns' best friend. He's got to be 90 years old. The guy's been in the business for 70 years. And I walk in and see this young, strapping, you know, big guy who's, you know, probably younger than me. And I doubtful. And I kind of look up and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. The perception was completely different. And it's all changed. It's all changed because now, I mean, look at the Scooter Braun as a, as a manager. He's a mover. He's a shaker. He's a great manager. He's built this great company. He's got almost a million Twitter followers or something. And, and by the way, good for him. He deserves it. He's built an incredible business. But the managers and certain agents and certain players, so to speak, have become stars in their own right. That's one of the things that I worried about when I started this podcast in my spare time. And again, for those who don't know, John and I are doing this during our lunch break. Sure. But it's a situation where no matter what you're doing and you're trying to do something that will sort of pull back the curtain on the business and help people, there's always going to be somebody out there saying, well, why did you take your lunch and do that with John Ferreter? I mean, you could have been Making working calls for, for me. me. Okay, but I'll tell you something. This is what I learned. And I was at William Morris from something like August 21st, uh, 1991 to depending on who you talk to, October 16th, 17th, 18th, or 19th, uh, 2009, when they fired me. They violated my contract. They locked me out of the building. They fired me, and that's why there was a lawsuit. But for that 18 years, as I was there, or 18 years plus, I was transactional. 
deal, 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 meeting, deal, call, deal, sell, 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 sell. Before I got to William Morris, I'd written 250 songs. I'd played in a band for years. I played every crappy club in LA and Santa Barbara. I'd been on the road. I'd opened for REM, the Bengals, Guns N' Roses. I had a whole different creative side. And the moment I got to William Morris, they subjugate the creative because they want you to be transactional because it's about making money. When I got out of William Morris, and and as you talked about in the cold open, my Jerry Maguire moment was not in the merger. And my Jerry Maguire moment was not when I flatlined at Cedars and my clients, you know, that Ryan Seacrest and Chelsea Handler and people like that left me when I was in a coma. That wasn't my Jerry Maguire moment. My Jerry Maguire moment was when they locked me out and called all the clients and said I had resigned and I hadn't. And then I had to go to the 200 some odd plus clients that I had. And I realized only about 12 stayed with me. Okay, that was the moment where I went, oh, where's the goldfish? Like, this does not end well. And I had to rebound and rebuild myself out of it. But what I learned in the process of going through all these things is that I came out of it and I went, okay, well, this happened. I can't change it. I can't go back and suddenly say, oh, gee, I was wrong. You know, I'm support the merger. I think this is good. Gee, Ariel Emanuel, I think you're the best guy to run this company. You know, I never felt that way. I still don't feel that way. They can make as much money as they want, and I think it's great, and they should because it's their company. They can do whatever they want with it. But they killed what was the William Morris Agency. It's dead. It doesn't exist anymore, and that part of Hollywood is gone forever. But what I learned was part of my rebirth is I got the opportunity to change my life from being 100% transactional to getting back on the creative side and getting balance in my life. And the stuff that I was missing, which I think also contributed to me getting, getting sick and getting ill, was that I didn't have the balance in my life and I needed to get the balance. I needed to get all the toxic stuck at, uh, stuff out of my life and I needed to get that creative balance back in. So by leaving William Morris, even though it wasn't my choice, I was fired. So by that happening, and everyone thought I'd never be fired because of the money I brought in and who I controlled and everything, but anyone can get fired, anyone. What I realized was it's almost like between that and flatlining at Cedars, it's almost like if you believe in God, God had said, act one of your life is over. We're now going to take an intermission and act one of your career is over. We're going to take an intermission and I will decide solely by myself because I'm God, whether or not you get an act two. So let me check the reviews and I'll come back and I'll get back to you. That was that four minutes that I flatlined. And that was really what I went through on October 19th when I was locked out of the building, when I was testifying in a, a lawsuit against uh, Jillian Barbary. And they knew I was in court and my phone was off. And that's when they called all the clients and said I had resigned. That was the moment where I had to really look in the mirror and say, okay, who am I and who am I going to be? Am I going to be a victim or am I going to be a survivor? Am I going to be a quitter or am I going to be a winner? And I can never beat them by trying to be an agency. So as far as I'm concerned, I probably will never be an agent again. It ended at that point, you know, and by the way, and I don't know what agency would ever hire me because I will tell them the truth. And most of those agents just aren't very good. So there would be a complete bloodletting if I went into any of these places because I demand a higher quality of service. But I had to decide at that point, who did I want to be from that point on going forward? And it was more important to me. I realized at that point to do right than to be right. And that was part of the transition in my life and in my growth. 
so you're in the room you raise your hand and you say well wait a second we got to go around the room and talk about it. Did they do what you said or did they continue with the process that they were doing? They did what I said. We changed what we did. Okay. So you had an impact in the room. Most people looked down because I think, well, I won't say I think. I will say I know because six years have gone by, so I've spoken to so many people. Most people have come back to me and have said, you were right, we should have listened to you. But most of those people who've said that to me lost their jobs. So you go around the room. If you remember correctly, what number were you when you spoke in the chain of the people who spoke out of the 19 when you voiced your no vote was it you were the first guy to speak were you the ninth person to speak the 18th i was 14th or 15th so at that point when you speak you already know it's already passed so i just asking you this question because i just think it's important because i'm trying to understand your philosophy here so at the 14th person, it's already passed. Your vote, whatever you say or do, is inconsequential at that point. It doesn't matter. It has no effect. You can't turn anything around. You're a very smart man. You had to know that when you voiced your opinion after everybody had talked that there were going to be ramifications walking through the building. Why did you express your opinion when it had no impact at that point? Because the way I was raised and the way I was raised by my father and by my mom was whatever you do, leave with your integrity intact. And we make mistakes all the time. You do. I do. Everybody here in the room, we've all made mistakes. Some we regret, some we don't regret. We learn from the mistakes. It wasn't a mistake. If I had voted yes, I would have been letting down all of the people who believed in the William Morris Agency. What about if you just abstained? Would you have been fired? Oh, I was going to be fired no matter what. <laughs> Look, pussies abstain. You either vote yes or you vote no. Pussies abstain from elections. You figure out, you, you write something and you do something. I'm not a pussy and I will never be a victim. And in, in this particular case, here's what I knew. There were people on the board who were signing long-term five-year deals that were guaranteeing them $4 million a year plus a $70,000 a month draw, and they were doing it for the money, and they didn't care about what happened to the company, in my opinion. They can come in and do your podcast, and they can tell you something different if that's their feeling. When I went through the lawsuit, I read thousands of emails during discovery of what people said and what they were thinking at that point, and a lot of it was just about the money. It wasn't... It wasn't about let's make a better company and let's do this. There were people who were frustrated who wanted out and they saw a way to get a lot of money and they voted accordingly and they had the power and they were able to push it through. Let's say you were one of the people that somebody met you on a park bench and they said, Hey, you're going to get the same you're deal. You're going to get the same deal. Would you abstain, said pass on this deal or would you said let's move forward? Really good question. I would have voted no. It was a bad deal. And if I'm going to make a bad deal for myself and I'm going to make a bad deal for the agency, how can I possibly represent a client in this business? How do you make a bad deal with a merger between a 111-year-old company and a company that really was rising like a rocket ship? They weren't. 
you say that because you were in business with them and you had clients with them, you know, so there's a different face they put on when they're in business with you. There are different things they say about you when you're not or when you pull a client. And most people aren't in that room when that happens at an agency. A lot of these agencies have the mentality. It's like the geek fraternity. They're the guys who couldn't get laid in high school or college. They're, they're not, you know, they're, they're part of a, they're part of a pack in terms of what they do. And that's the attitude when you're in these staff meetings. Uh, you'd have to go back and look at all the financials and, and I don't really want to get into what all those financials were, but I didn't see in either case, fiscally sound companies getting together. I saw a company that was hurting fiscally that had an opportunity to take over William Morris and my hat's off to them. They did a great job. As far as I'm concerned, they stole the company away from those guys. William Morris had lots of money from different sources, but they were bloated. There were a lot of agents who weren't uh, producing, who weren't that successful as far as I was concerned, and they were being paid a decent amount of money and they were staying there. There were agents who were rising through the ranks, who were put in positions of authority, who legally should not have had the ability or the authority to supervise an assistant. And they were making decisions there. I mean, it's, it, it's very much like, you know, watching Rome burn, you know, when you're in the middle of it. And you mentioned that they killed William Morris forever. So let's analyze this. This is six years ago. How many people were on the Endeavor board that was meeting that you guys weren't privy to? The partners they had were 28. I don't know what their board was, but there were 28 people who voted. They all voted yes. 28 people from Endeavor that voted yes. 18 out of 19 at William Morris that voted yes. So out of the 19 people at William Morris six years ago that were in that room, how many still work for William Morris? It's a good question. I think seven. Seven. So approximately 12 people are no longer working. You were in that meeting at Endeavor. Actually, talk to me January 1st at maybe six. Out of 28 people in that room in Endeavor, how many are still at the company? I don't know the exact number, but I think it's 28. Could be 27. Got it. So that's what you mean. It was an inside job. There was, it was very clear. And there were things which were represented and then misrepresented that, you know, I experienced firsthand. But, but I will tell you one thing. I have no regrets over anything that I said or anything that I did because I believe I was able to do what was right, was right for the people who were essentially my constituents, um, who I represented when I walked into that board meeting and I've got no regrets with it whatsoever. And I look at where I am life-wise now, the experiences I've had, although some of them have been very difficult and it was very difficult to be in a lawsuit for two years and, you know, read emails of what people said. And, um, I, I came up with a new phrase, you know, people say characters who you are in the dark. I say characters who you are on email. So I learned so much from the process. I'm forever grateful for that. It made me a better person. It made me a stronger person. And from that point of view, anytime I walk in a room, if I see any one of those guys, I hold my head high. I've got nothing to be ashamed of. You run into these people all throughout town. Sure. Tell me somebody or 
a group of people that were in that room that if there was a true serum in your veins, you'd say, you know what? I still have enormous respect for that person. They're a great agent. They're a great person. They made a deal that they believed in, whether it was financial or not. They're still doing great right now. And even though they tried to take my legs out, I still respect them. Of both companies? Yes. I think Ari Greenberg's a great agent. And I think the tragedy to those guys would have been if Ari had run scripted and I had run non-scripted, how much money they would have made. That would have been unstoppable. He's a very, very good agent, and I have a lot of respect for him. Um, I like Mike Simpson. Mike Simpson. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Brian Spizer at APA. I worked with him for years at William Morris and Octagon, and I've watched how he's developed, and he's a great agent. Um, I always look at it in answering your question, would I sign with them? So if I needed an agent, yeah, Brian is somebody I would sign with. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Deborah Goldfarb and what she's done. And Deb and I worked together at William Morris and we had a fallout when she went to CAA. And, you know, I, I've since really learned a lot about her. Um, personally, I always knew her and always respected her, but personally and professionally, I've watched how she's done her business. I think she's terrific. I, I have a lot of respect for Babette Perry, who's now at Innovative. Yeah. She's hung in there and she's done a great job and she'll pick up the phone and call me and say, Hey, here's a heads up on something. Um, those are people who have been genuine and they've also called me at times when I've been down. I'll give you an interesting fact. I was thrown out of William Morris on uh, October 19th or thereabouts, 2009. To my knowledge, and I could be wrong, I could be forgetting something, but to my knowledge in that six plus years, I don't think one person from the agency has taken me to lunch. Wow. And I trained, promoted, coddled, uh, developed that entire department and other departments as well. But not one of those people has reached out and said, hey, I want to say thank you for what you did. Or I don't want to say thank you. I just want to see how you're doing. Not one. Incredible. I thought there'd be a story of one person who called you and said, listen, I'm not supposed to call you, but. There are stories of people who've called who've said that. There, there are a couple of people, you know, who've done that. But for the most part, and it's interesting, I ran into someone, I was in the building two days ago because I was meeting with one of the law firms there working on something. And I was in the elevator and I saw a guy who was in the department and he's like, hey, you know, I'm going to call you and we're going to go to lunch. And I just laughed. I'm like, you're not going to call me and we're not going to go to lunch and you're a liar. <laughs> and what did he say? <laughs> there was nothing he could say because he knows it's true. In an elevator you said that? Yeah, there were like two other people in the elevator. <laughs> but, but, but here's the deal. If you don't say it, then we all have this myth like everything is going to be okay. Look, here's the deal. Life isn't like all the Hollywood movies. You can't focus test the ending in life and then decide what you want to do. You make decisions on the spot. You make decisions on behalf of your client. If I told you how many times some buyer had called me and had threatened me and said, if you don't do this, I'm going to do this to your client. It's like, well, I'm doing it because it's in the best interest of the client. And they're the one paying me and I'm not selling them out. You got to call people's bluffs. You have to call it. And if they really have the power and they want to blackball you, then they're going to do it. But they're going to do it anyway. But at least as they're blackballing me, they can respect the fact that I have no respect for them. Got it. So, so tell me somebody 
who visited you or called you after you were flatlined or at some point in the hospital that completely stunned you. And the reason why I'm saying this, I saw that one of the greatest documentaries I've seen in the past decade was the Magic Johnson, Larry Bird documentary. Fantastic. Where Magic talks about how Larry just completely iced him, treated him like shit, never gave him the time of day, never let him believe that he had any feelings for him. And then when Magic was diagnosed with AIDS and it came out on the Arsenio Hall show, right. somebody who John has represented, Magic gets home and the phone rings and he picks up the phone. It's Larry Bird. Yeah. And Magic starts crying in the interview because he talks about how you never really understand really truly who your friends are until, until something really horrible happens to you so tell me somebody who you were stunned that they actually reached out to you when you thought maybe this person was never a person who would be that kind of person to you well i have to put a caveat on it because it's not that i didn't think they would be that type of person in some cases, I didn't think they really knew I existed. If that makes you like, you know, you see them and you meet them, but the people who openly went out of their way to help me, uh, Jeff Gaspin was one. Paul Telegi was another. Paul Telegi, uh, uh, or Telegi, uh, uh, is the head of non-scripted at NBC and was one of the people with Jeff who launched The Voice. Right. Um, David Hill. David Hill, another guest of this podcast, was at the time the president of Fox Sports, but the number two guy to Rupert Murdoch. Les Moonves. Couldn't have been more kind. And... Uh, all the CNN brass, John Klein, Jim Walton, all those guys. What happened was when I started at Octagon, I basically went to a sports management marketing company and they said, we need an entertainment division because their fear was as the traditional agencies got into sports, they'd start to poach their sports clients. Ironically, John, a publicly traded company. Correct. Correct. So uh, by IPG. So when I went to Octagon and started the entertainment division and we started getting into it, what was amazing were the five or six people called and said, what can I do to help you? And that was my magic Larry moment when I realized, and I said this to a couple people, I said, you don't have to do anything. You just did it. Just the fact that you called. I remember David Hill, who's just one of the greatest guys in the history of this business. Amazing. Saved the Fox Network by getting that football deal 20 some odd years ago. And he's producing the Academy Awards now. David's just an unbelievable person. Two, three days after I got locked out, I mean, nobody would take my call. Nobody would return my call. Clients weren't calling. I'd had one client called me right off the bat, Piers Morgan, and said, if you're out, I'm firing him. And he did. And then Glenn Weiss, who's directing the Academy Awards this year for uh, uh, for David, Glenn called me you know, moments later and said, what's going on? I told him what was going on. He goes, okay, I'm out. I'm firing him. And then there were other people, Nancy O'Dell, Kieran Chetri, Mark Wahlberg. There were people like that. Mark Wahlberg, the TV host. Um, there were certain people who just said, you're my guy, whatever's going on, I'm coming with you. And that was great. Ironically, some of the production companies and producers I was really close with, they didn't call for a few weeks. 
and then a couple came, but most of them didn't come. They really weighed their options, and I suddenly realized, wow, I'm not what I thought I was to them. Um, but it was a couple people. David Hill, two, three days afterwards, he took me out to lunch, took me to lunch at the grill. And bear in mind, I had just gotten off crutches. I had been in the hospital for 60-some-odd days before that. I'd been back at the agency about a month. They wanted me gone. You know, they kept drilling at me until Ari was able to lock me out. And the irony of it was as soon as David took me out and as soon as he literally did it in a very public manner, it was kind of like, oh, okay, you know, I get it. I got to come back tomorrow and I got to do this again and I've got nothing to be ashamed of. I just got to go and live my life knowing that a guy that I'm going to end up suing is sitting at the next table with one of my ex clients pitching a show that I developed for the guy. So, you know, it's when you have clients and you separate with them, it's, you know, having a client list is like being married to 50 different people and trying to make all those marriages work. And that, that's really what it comes down to. So you do the best that you can, but you also understand sometimes, you know, between the client and the representative, you're just not meeting each other's needs. All right. So if you don't mind, I'd like to go way, way back. Okay. To where you grew up, your family life school, friends, and what was your first inspiration that told you, hey, I want to be in the entertainment business? Good, really good question. Uh, I was an army brat, so I grew up all over. I was born in Tacoma, Washington, lived in several places, probably 10, 11 different houses that we lived in until um, I became 11. Uh, my dad retired from the army. We lived up at Lake Tahoe. Uh, for a couple of years when they were kind of building ski resorts, he was involved in launching Tahoe Donner up there. I went to high school in Pebble Beach and went to college at UC Santa Barbara. It's probably sometime while I was at UCSB. Um, I was doing radio. I started doing radio broadcasting when I was in high school. Helped start a station that's still in existence up at uh, my high school, KSPB FM in Pebble Beach. I worked for a couple commercial stations at Santa Barbara. I was the program director of KCSB and then I worked for a commercial outlet, KTMS AM and FM. And it was sometime at that point when I thought I would do something in the entertainment business. Business. I always thought it would be in radio. And then I was at KCSB when we put Jim Rome on the air. And I remember when Jim, Jim Rome, the big sportscaster. One of the most innovative and groundbreaking sports talk radio guys in history. And I remember when I was listening to Jim Rome and a couple of these other guys who were doing uh, uh, radio, I went, I can never do what those guys can do. Like, that's real radio talent. I'm a guy who likes radio. <laughs> These guys are real radio talent. And that was kind of it for me when I, I said, I, I got to figure out something to do in the business. I had started playing in a band. We were terrible. I think we were the world's worst band for a while. Uh, actually, that's not true. We were the world's worst band for a while. But with everything, the more you play and the more you rehearse and the more you practice, you get better. And uh, I realized I wasn't real real good at playing other people's songs. So I would just start writing my own. And the more we wrote, the better we got and started building an audience. And th that was one of the things that brought me down to Los Angeles because I was writing, uh, recording and producing. So when I moved down here in April of uh, 1988, I really thought I was going to come down and pursue a recording career or do something with the record companies. I got into the agency business on a fluke. I started meeting different agents around town in 1990. And I would ask everybody, 
what do they do? What's that guy do? I was at the Universal Amphitheater. I'd be backstage there. I had friends that worked there. So I'd go to the shows for free. And I, I'd see these guys. They'd all huddle in a certain area, eat a couple crackers, eat some cheese, <laughs> drink a sparkling water or a beer. Probably a beer at that point before they all went AA. Um, but I'd watch how these guys dealt with other people. And I'd say, who is that guy? And they'd go, oh, that's John Marks. He co-runs the music department at William Morris. He's got men at work and blah, blah, blah. And I watched these people and I, I, I liked what they did. So I thought, I can be a music agent. That's what I, you know what? And I think I applied to a couple of the agencies and everyone <laughs> said, I remember one interview where the uh, woman said, uh, your hair is too long and you look like you're wearing your father's suit. <laughs> Another thing I notice when I'm sitting across from John Ferreter, the way he dresses is classy, but he always dresses in a suit that does appear like it could be relevant 50 <laughs> years ago. Like he's wearing this incredible timeless black suit. He's got the black standard kind of shoes that could be worn today or 50 years ago. But the key tip off is what I always love. Almost always he wears a vest. Well, I've got to go over to the Ringo auction later. So. <laughs> and who knows, Twiggy could come walking in here. I want to be relevant. 50 years ago, 1966, 50th anniversary of Good Vibrations. 50 years of Good Vibrations. Let's <laughs> celebrate it. So, no, no the, 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 the truth is, I just, when I came to Los Angeles and I got immersed in the city, I, it just opened my eyes. And I started going to comedy clubs. I'd never really gone to comedy clubs. I'd seen Jay Leno because he'd drive up on his motorcycle and he'd do a club in Santa Barbara at like 7.30 at night and then he'd drive back to LA and do three clubs. So I'd seen stand-ups, but when I walked in, really about 1990, and I started going to comedy clubs and I'd go to the improv or some of these places, I mean, it was a fertile ground. You saw amazing stuff. There were some of the biggest stars of our time that were getting up on that stage and doing 10 minutes you know, and working their material out. And so you're a William Morris, you're hiding this guy's dialysis, you're learning at mock speed. How do you get your first break to be promoted to an agent? And who was your first client that people turned around as you walked in the hallway and said, what the fuck? How did he, how did yeah. you do that? This is a new guy. How did he get to this point? First client was Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead. Holy shit. And the way I got Jerry is I picked up the phone and I called him. And I said, do you have an agent? And I knew uh, his... How could he not have an agent? He didn't. I knew his attorneys up in Marin County who handled his estate planning and his tax accounting. Here's a little tip for everybody out there if you want to be a representative. Get to know the business managers. Get to know the estate planners. Those are the people you want to get to know for your clients because your clients talk to them every day. Clients talk to their managers. They talk to their PR people. They rarely, if ever, speak with their agents, as we both know. <laughs> it's usually us as managers who have to speak to the agents and the agents. You know, there are a couple of good agents out there. There are a couple of great agents out there, but there are a lot of really bad agents, really bad that are out there. Uh, but the ones who are good are good, you know, and, and you want to be partnered with them because they're good at what they do. They're fearless and you have to be fearless. But you just have to figure out who, if you want to sign someone, who do they talk to on a daily basis? And you better be in that person's life. Tell me the non-scripted agents that you respect. The ones who basically primarily package non-scripted shows, which is more in your world. 
Well, it's going to sound weird because I've had different experiences and I've read so many emails. So I know how people think. And when you read someone's email and you see different parts about their character. Because email does not reflect tone. Uh, but if you read some of that stuff, it makes it hard to respect certain people because of what they put in print. Black and white, you know, when it's in black and white, it just doesn't read well, no matter, you know, no matter what you say. Email should really be used for nine o'clock, yes, you know, Bedford and Wilshire. I mean, things that are black and white. You can preface something, like if you want a client to make more money on something, you could send an email to the people saying, listen, it's a new year. I love you guys. You're so wonderful. But I don't really think that the rate that you're paying from last year is going to work this year. And you could just say, I love you guys or whatever it is. And they could be like, ah, oh, Jesus, that mother f- absolutely charging us more money again. Why won't this guy be happy? God damn it. He always makes our life so miserable. And then he throws in the I love you just to think that, hey, it's going to pacify us. It's like there's no winning. The winning is staying in the game. You go through William Morris, you're kicking ass, you start representing these people, you start putting shows together. What's the first show that you put together where people in the hallway were like, what the fuck, he did it again? Um, Good question. I worked on a lot of different things, but the ones where people started turning their heads, there were specials that we would do because this was, you got to remember in the early 90s, my job was really to take all of the clients and all the managers who were complaining and just get them work. So it was a director on a game show here. It was a sidekick on a show. It was some actor getting them a host gig. It was some host reporter getting them a radio gig. My job, I was the drain. Everything that fell down to the bottom of the drain, I collected it at the drain and then figured out, you know, where to put it all. Then I started selling various pilots and things here and there. I remember the first sitcom pilot was with a uh, Def Jam comedian named Teddy Carpenter. Of course, from Washington, D.C. Absolutely fantastic. And and Teddy would call me and uh, Teddy would always say, listen here, I got to talk to you. So I actually went out and I bought a five minute egg timer and I had it on my desk. So whenever Teddy would call it, flip it over because I knew I had to get off within five minutes. If not, he'd go for an hour. <laughs> and I loved the guy. He was great. And I did two things with him. I sold a sitcom with him, and then he was going to be the next Arsenio Hall. Well, I did a big Tribune late-night deal, which ultimately didn't go to series because the guy who bought it quit and went to uh, 20th at the time. Uh, Donnie and Marie was a big one. I had inherited Marie Osmond. She was a great client. She was a very good friend. And Donnie was pitching a talk show with like Maureen McCormick or someone like that. And no one was buying it. And I met Donnie's manager and I said, if we put them back together, we can sell this and get it on the air. And she looked at me like I was the devil. She didn't want to have anything to do with me. And I said, look, you're going to get a talk show and they're going to pay Donnie like 500,000. If I put Donnie and Marie together, they're going to get 2 million plus a year you know, each of them, let's work this out. And his manager was smart at the time. And she said, if you really think you can do that. And there was an attorney involved who vouched for me, you know, basically said to the manager, John's a good guy. He's not like the rest of these guys. He'll actually do what he says he's going to do. So that was a big one. Put them together and put that back on the air. But look, there've been so many. And we went through this one period once we started selling all the non-scripted shows where it was like we were selling a show every other day. You know, Millionaire went on. I remember we all looked at the tape when it was sent over originally. It was called Cash Mountain. 
Went through a couple changes, whatever, became Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, bam, goes on the air. And it was Michael Davies. Michael Davies was the buyer who bought it. Oh, he was the buyer. And then we went in to service the show, and we gave him a list of potential hosts, and Regis was on the list, and I remember they passed on Regis at first. They were like, what about Bob Costas? What about, you know, Al Michaels? They were looking at all these sports guys. And then I believe it was, oh, I forget his name, but the guy who ran the... ABC O&O's at the time, Walter something. Um, he was like, what about Regis? This will help our show. And then Michael uh, Davies, to his credit, then got religion and he made it happen for Regis. And then he didn't like any of the producers he was meeting with. So he quit his job at ABC and became the producer of the show, made millions, produces all kinds of shows. It was a genius move by Mike. And I always had a very hot and cold relationship with him because I had previously sold him a late night show at Buena Vista uh, with John Sally, who was going to be the other next Arsenio. Which was a travesty of what happened to John Sally. It was a great pilot. It was cleared in almost 90% of the country. And then there was a switch to Keenan Ivory Wayans. There was a substitution. <laughs> there, was, there was a timeout. There was a substitution. They gave the deal to Keenan because they were worried about Magic's show launching, and they were afraid that if Magic worked, that would make it impossible to have two basketball players in the late night. And if Magic didn't work, it would make it impossible because people would say, we just you know tried it with a basketball player. So yeah, that was a tough one, and Michael and I had, had gone through the, um, the wars on it. But the irony was we later came together and did a lot of good business. And I actually have a tremendous amount of respect for him now. He's a great producer, understands TV. He's still a fan of TV, and he makes some great shows. Yeah, and John Sally was a guest here, and it was an amazing podcast. John's well. great. I don't know anyone in my life that has flatlined and been dead for four minutes. Okay. Although we, although we have clients whose careers have been dead a lot longer <laughs> that we've been able to resuscitate. That's true. Most of the people listening have no idea what that's all about. Now, maybe you're going to tell us that you are one of the people who have no idea what's it about because there's nothing to say. There's been books that have been written. Take us through what you felt, what you remember, what you visualized during this time that they said you were dead and how it all came back. And two-part question. How, after all these people left from Chelsea Handler to Ryan Seacrest, all these people, you're on an operating table, you're almost dead, and you have to come back, and how do you come back from something like that and gather yourself up and pick yourself up and do it? But firstly, tell us what happened on that table and what you remember or what you visualized that we would never know. Well, after the first part, then the second part of coming back is easy. <laughs> so I'll explain that to you. Um, first, I, gotta, I, I have to kick it off with a very quick story is I used to represent a psychic medium named James Van Prague. Of course. And um, the Ghost Whisperer was based on his story. A and, very difficult human being to deal with, but also a very powerful man. Yeah. And, and, and I like him. I like him a lot. Um, and I had sold his talk show to Tribune that got on the air. I'd done a bunch of stuff with James over the years. My favorite thing was when I came out of the hospital and I'm on crutches and I couldn't walk because my leg had been badly damaged and there'd been 
talk of taking my leg at the time because uh, the MRSA, the infection was so bad. And the, one of the first places I went to out in public, I went to some a banquet or something and I'm on crutches <laughs> and I'm walking through the room and I see James and James sees me and he'd heard the story about I'd been in the hospital I'd flatline and James runs over to me and kind of stands in front of me and he goes, John, John, you have to tell me what was it like? And I'm thinking, you freak, I've sold two series with you based on the fact that you're a psychic medium and you talk to the dead, you should know, you know, you're like of all people, you should know you're the psychic medium. Um, look, here's the, here's the first thing. I can only tell you what my experience is. I can't tell you what anyone else's experience is. And I can tell you, this is what I believe happened because it's what the doctors told me. You know, when I asked questions, they said, well, you were kind of out to the world. I never saw lights. You don't see any of that stuff. You do see your life flash before your eyes. It's like watching kind of a, a clicked Kodachrome, almost like the Wall Street version, you know, or the uh, graveyard scene of Easy Rider where they're walking through the thing, the acid trip. You see your life and it's very disjointed and you see a lot of people and places and things that you just haven't seen in years. And that's really what I saw. And you see everything through your eyes. So it's not like you see you doing it. You do 100% see it through your eyes. So right now I would see you. I would see how your hair falls. I would see how your, you know, your beard is, how you're holding the mic, your, your cuffs of your shirt. It's very vivid and it's very colorful and it's very powerful. And I remember when I came out of it, the first questions I was asking, and, and I couldn't talk for about two, three days because they had to pull tubes out of my throat and all sorts of stuff. But I remember I started asking about people from my past and people kind of looked at me like, we don't know who that is. Why are you asking us about that? Now, 2009, everybody in the world wasn't on Facebook or Twitter didn't exist and all these things. If it happened to me now, I would probably go back and find all these people and say, hey, I just have this, these thoughts about you. And I've looked up some of those people. Some are dead, you know, uh, many are living. And I just felt, hey, something's telling me in the universe I need to reconnect with this person, so I'm going to reconnect with them. But you, it's like seeing a movie. It's like watching a movie and seeing all these things that you saw, and they're not in chronological order. So it's almost like you float in, and I see everybody sitting here, and, and you know, I see the blue t-shirt you've got underneath your, you know, black and white, your black and uh, uh, red shirt. You see very vivid things and you just remember them. You remember the vibrancy to it. And then I came out of it. And then I really was kind of, you know, under wraps and medicated and stuff for a couple of weeks. So when I could finally talk, I wanted to talk about the dream I had. I kept thinking, I just had this dream. And man, it was a weird dream. I was back in Berlin, Germany. I was a little kid and Arnold Colville turned around and handed me a pencil for a test. You know, people I had not thought about in years and years and years. That's really what that was like. When you go through that, and I remember the day I found out I had actually flatlined, I was in the hospital. I was going to get out in a couple of days. They couldn't balance my potassium level because evidently, you know, we're like a human, we're like an engine. And if all our fluids and things aren't balanced the right way, we just go down. So... I uh, was there. I had been on dialysis in the hospital, ironically, like on the same floor where Dick Howard, you know, did his dialysis. So that was weird. But um, I'm watching TV 
and uh, I'm watching CNN and I watch a lot of news and I'm watching CNN and they're talking about Ed McMahon who had passed away and then all of a sudden they come on and they go Farrah Fawcett died and they start talking about Farrah Fawcett she had just passed away and I'm like oh my god Ed McMahon died and Farrah Fawcett died and then all of a sudden they cut into the news and they go Michael Jackson is dead because Michael Jackson and Farrah died on the same day and I watched all of that and they were talking about how um, uh, the doctors had worked on Michael for like 12 minutes or something. And my doctor, one of the doctors who saved my life, uh, this great guy, Dr. Eng, walked in and he was in the room with me and we were watching the TV and we were talking. And I said to him, well, Dr. Eng, can you work on someone for 12 minutes? And they come back and he said, no, really, after about four and a half minutes or something like that, there's some form of brain damage. Um, he said, you, you know, you were out for less than that. And that was the moment I went, whoa, rewind. What do you mean I was out? And he explained it to me. And no one had wanted to tell me. So once he explained it to me, and we had this great conversation and walked through technically what it all meant and everything. It was fantastic. And then he walked out of the room and I looked at the TV and Larry King, who was a client of mine at the time, was on TV interviewing, you know, Jermaine or Tito or... Reggie or Jesse Jackson or one of those people. Anyway, he's, you know, interviewing someone and I'm not even paying attention to who he's talking to. And the overwhelming thing came over me and I just broke down at that point. And I remember sitting, I was all alone, literally in the hospital. It's Larry King on the TV interviewing, you know, Action Jackson or whoever he's interviewing. Cause I really wasn't paying attention then it was all blurred together. And I thought, Oh, that's what happened. That's what the dream was. Wow. So, so when you come out of that and then you got to, you know, go back to work and all this stuff had taken place and I found out clients had left and everything. The first thing is I don't blame any client who left to this day. I don't blame them. It cost me a lot of money. In some cases it helped their career In almost every case it hurt their career. You know, I believe karma is a big thing, but people are going to do what they're going to do. You know, you know that you've, you've been through this many times. Sometimes they just decide, Hey, this is what I want and this is what I'm going to do. And then they go and they do it and there's nothing you or I or anybody else can do about it. I, I, I kind of came up with a thing the last couple of years and I realized everyone's wanting to assess blame in the entertainment industry. Whose fault is it? It's your fault. It's your fault. Whose fault? You know, someone's at fault here. And I started going, well, what, what does it mean when you're at fault? So I got to make fault a positive word. I don't want it to be negative anymore. So to me, fault, I'll be at fault. The F in fault is going to be forgiveness. The A in fault is going to be acceptance. The U in fault is going to be understanding. The L in fault is going to be love or loyalty. And the T in fault is going to be trust. So I'll be at fault. You want to blame someone? Blame me. I can handle it. Fantastic. Okay. I have to do a little six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention somebody's name. Just tell me one word that comes to mind. Chelsea Handler. Vodka. Ryan Seacrest. Fame. Larry King. Wives. Adam Carolla. Bitter. Dick Clark. 
Legend. Garth Brooks. Humble. Arsenio Hall. Sidekick. Piers Morgan. Friend. Awesome. Your proudest moment in show business. Prouder than this? <laughs> My proudest moment? Well, probably was getting Piers Morgan the CNN deal to replace Larry King. And the reason for that was the day all the crap went down at William Morris Endeavor, Pierce called instantly. He was in England. And he's reading it online, so he knows none of the stuff's true. He asks me what's going on. He goes, okay, I'm going to fire him. I'm going with you. And I'm like, I don't even know where I'm going. I don't even know if I've been fired. I think I've been fired, but I don't, you know, the attorneys have to tell me whether I've been fired. He goes, I don't care. If they're going to treat you this way, I'm out. And then I went and saw Pierce do an interview and. England and he interviewed a pop opera singer named Catherine Jenkins and he was brilliant in the interview and I said man you can do this you're the one guy on the planet who's capable of interviewing doing serious interviews with the president of France in Paris and then you could do Paris Hilton in France and you can pull them both off so we 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 were like we got to get you the top interview job we can get and we went into CNN and we did the pitch and they bought it in the room. They basically said, he's the guy we want to do this um, amongst themselves. But we had walked out of the room because I had to get him to America's Got Talent, where he was a judge for the first seven seasons. Did they consult Larry? No, but I knew they wanted to get rid of Larry because they'd had issues with him for years. But when we went into CNN, we didn't go into CNN to try to get Larry's job. We went in to try to do some interview specials for them. They had made the decision. And I remember standing right by the Time Warner Center in New York. I just put Piers in the car. He's going down to the tape. I don't really have a job at, at this point. I think I was just starting at Octagon and I'm trying to figure things out. And the phone rings and it was John Klein from CNN. And he said, he's our guy. Can we get him? Can you make the deal work? And I was like, oh yeah, no problem. Not realizing, well, kind of realizing he was exclusive to Fremantle on America's Got Talent. He had exclusivity deals in England with ITV on Britain's Got Talent and all these things. And it was a morass. I, I remember going to, um, going back in the office and putting up a whiteboard and writing all of his exclusivities and writing up a grid and saying, how do we make this work? And the NBC Fremantle America's Got Talent exclusivity was time period exclusivity also, which meant nine o'clock. And CNN wanted him for nine o'clock. And I'm sitting here and I wrote the list and I'm like, how many people do I have to convince to change contracts to do this? And there were several. You know, from Simon Cowell to Cecile Fracotez at Fremantle to Jeff Zucker at NBC, who later became his boss at CNN, to Jeff Gaspin at NBC, uh, to all the CNN people, to the ITV people. It was a lot of getting on a plane and flying to London, flying to New York, flying all over. And the main argument I would imagine would be this will help everybody. Yeah. And, and well, the, great, the greatest thing was, and I credit Jeff Zucker for this, is Piers and I went. And took a meeting with Jeff in, uh, when he was running NBC. <clears throat> we took a meeting with him in New York, and I kept trying to get the meeting set, and I couldn't get it set with Jeff. And finally, on a Sunday morning at like 6 a.m., New York time, he shoots me an email and says, yeah, if you can be here tomorrow. And I was already in New York because I knew I had to be there if he gave us the meeting. And I called Piers. I'm like, get on a plane. Come over. I need you here tomorrow for this meeting. So Piers flies over. And we're prepping for the meeting, getting ready to go. 
and we're walking down Sixth uh, Avenue, and um, the phone rings, and it appears as a PA from London, and she goes, uh, "Are you in the meeting?" And I said, "No, we're not. We're just getting ready to go in." And she said, "Okay, well, just call me later." And I said, "No, no, what is it? We got some time." Well, his father's just had a stroke. So there's that human moment where you sit there and you think, do I not say something and do we go in and take the meeting? And then I go, no, no, I have to tell him. This is, you know, it's his father. It just happened. So I tell Piers what's going on. He talks to his mom, you know, realizes he's in New York. Father's in England. There's nothing he can do. He's in the hospital. They're trying to figure things out. And Piers and I are standing in front of uh, Rockefeller Center getting ready to go in to see Jeff. And we both look at each other. And I said, okay. I said, do you want to do this? And he said, yes. And I said, all right. No is not an option. We do not leave that room until Jeff gives you permission to do it. And Jeff was a pro. And Jeff was great. And I remember he said, yeah, it was hysterical. He said, I'm not going to be someone to stand in front of someone's dream if this is your dream. And then he looked at me and he said, John we're going to extract a heavy toll to do this. He said, and you're going to tell everybody how gracious I was to do it. So Jeff Zucker was extremely gracious at that moment. And I am forever grateful. As if it's probably not obvious, your biggest disappointment in show business. I still can't figure out why the Paula Poundstone show didn't work. (laughs) 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 There are too many, all the disappointments rank together. All right. Last question. What advice do you have for the young executive out there or the young artist who has a dollar and a dream and wants to try to get to the next level and to fight through all the craziness and the navigation, the adversity that an executive or an artist has to get to to get to the next level? Well, I wish I had always taken my own advice that I'm about to give because I certainly have made mistake after mistake, but continue to learn and get better from it. The first thing is understand that you don't know everything and nobody you're dealing with knows everything. You can always learn. You can always get better. Number two, never get in a car in Los Angeles if you have to pee. And number three and the most important... (laughs) Do not sleep your way to the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, awesome. I was expecting something totally different. John Farreter, huge, as Jim Rome would say, fantastic. I'm so grateful you came here. This is one of the most authentic and unique and special podcasts I've ever done on Industry Standard. Thank you so much. Anytime. I thank you, Barry. Thanks so much. All right. And as always, you've been listening to the Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name. Put you It's never quite over. So 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.